So Nehemiah 9 and 10 is what we're going to work through. It's a lot of verses. We're not going to do them all this morning, but we're going to get the main, we're going to get the main message, going to get the main idea. So we'll spend more detailed time in chapter 9, and then we'll unpack chapter 10 a little bit too before we're done. I invite you to read along with me verses 1 through 3 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. It's been a busy year for these Jews. Not you, although it's probably been a busy year for you too. You're thinking about Christmas coming, Thanksgiving. It's easy to identify with being busy, and I'm sure you are. But it's been a busy year for them because they left Babylon. They rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem in 52 days. There was no Amazon Prime, no Ace Hardware, no professional contractors. They had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They had enemies scheming and political things going on and all kinds of bad stuff happening and threats and sneaky attacks and all sorts of things. But they had God on their side, and they trusted him, and they obeyed him, and they built the wall. And then in chapter 8, they stayed busy, spiritually speaking, because they're not just rebuilding the physical city that they lived in. They're rebuilding their faith, in a sense. They're back in the promised land, and they're regaining the faith that they had lived out because there's a temple again. There's Levites again. There's priests again. They can worship as Jews again, and that's what's going on. In this chapter, the spiritual action continues. They come together, they put on sackcloth, they put dirt on themselves, they're fasting, they've got serious. Now, you'll remember maybe from two weeks before that they were serious in a different way. Chapter 8, two weeks ago, they were really serious, but they did the Feast of Booths. And you might remember we talked about rejoicing, eat the good food live in a sort of homemade wooden structure that was like a shed and just worship God for days and eat the good food and sing the good songs. And now here we are in chapter 9, sackcloth, dirt, fasting. It's kind of a jarring experience to go from the one to the other. What's happening here? When I first started going to worship services, I was a teenager, and this was in Tennessee, and people would get a little dressed up, honestly. They'd take off the work boots and put on some dress shoes of some kind. The men might wear a tie. Ladies would wear a dress or do their hair a little differently or have some more jewelry on or something. They, it was church. They were, they were going to church, and they, they looked the part. You know, they put a little effort into their appearance that they wouldn't have done on Saturday you know, or whatever other day or football games or whatever. They, they got dressed up. But honestly, that's the opposite of these Jews. I mean, they're getting ugly. <laughs> If I can be honest, like they're getting ugly with their clothes. I mean, who puts dirt on themselves? Like we just, I mean, we might, now I have young boys, like we go play and we get dirt, right? And some of you do too, you know, you go fishing, you go hiking, the things you do, you go, you get in the kitchen and you're really getting into cooking and you're chopping and there's, you know, olive oil flying and flowers up in the air stuff. You know, we get dirty doing things that are fun, but, but this is just kind of different. Well, there are two ways of seeing humanity. Long before Nehemiah, long before these people, a prophet Isaiah talked about humanity and he said all their righteousness is filthy rags. 
He said, all these people have become unclean, and even the righteous things that they do are imperfect and corrupted and impure. They're not righteous people. That sounds like the Jews in Nehemiah 9. It sounds like they're getting the idea. See, because these Jews are demonstrating an outward expression of an inward reality. They're saying, we're corrupted on the inside. We're unclean on the inside. We're impure on the inside. We're not right. We're not good. Trading kingdoms demands honesty. I want to point out, too, with this, this idea that trading kingdoms demands honesty, you'll notice that the Jews don't spend a single breath talking about their neighbor's sins. They don't say, you wouldn't believe what these Babylonians are doing. They don't say, let me tell you how wicked these Persians are. They could have done that because they lived there. I mean, they'd been there for decades. They leave that behind. They could have talked about somebody else's mess, but they don't. They talk about their own. They take responsibility for themselves. Something else I want to point out to you that's going on is some of these Jews had married people from other tribes, which is not just to have new family, but it's to mix their gods, to mix their culture, to mix their faith. Like when they marry these tribes, they start to adopt their ways of life. So that's going on. And that might sound strange because, I mean, we live in New England, right? But, but for, for them, Philistines and Ammonites and other kinds of Canaanites, other people groups were as close to them as New Bedford to us or Truro to us. Like we just think of some nearby town. But to them, something as close as Truro was a whole different people group with a whole different God, with a whole different way of life and values. And they'd married into that. So when these verses talk about separating from them, what, what is it that actually separates them? Because the scripture is saying they got ugly, they started fasting, and they got separated. But separated from what exactly and how? Well, you might know a little bit about Jewish culture and ways of life. They do tend to not eat pork. They do tend to circumcise their children. They do tend to have all these laws. But here's what separated these Jews. It wasn't just things like that, although that's true. Here's what separated them. They stood up before God and they confessed their sins. They got honest with God. Trading kingdoms demands honesty. They, they're up in front of God, and they tell them, this is the truth of our lives. We're corrupted. We're impure. We're unclean. Most people that I interact with think that they're pretty good people. You could ask them about it, you know, or if you, not like you walk around every day saying, have you thought about, you know, spending the rest of your life in hell? But if you do which they wouldn't really, you know, they wouldn't really necessarily have an answer for that. But if you did, like, pretty sure their statement would be something like, I'm pretty good. This week alone, I heard somebody say, well, I've never murdered anybody. And to which I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Like, that's, that's good to know. I'm glad that you're not doing that. But that doesn't exactly address some of your core issues. There's some other things wrong. And then they started to be honest and right, you know, and they name all these other things. These Jews were not afraid that their deeds would be exposed. They weren't trying to say we're really good people. They were courageous before God. We have major dysfunction in our lives. And then they found forgiveness and faith and new hope. I need a little help here. So I asked Caleb, where's my partner in crime this morning? Caleb, you ready? I asked Caleb if he would help me. Right there, 
are for you when you want to like attach the burlap. So you just wrap it around me. I'm going to keep my arms out because I can't fall if I don't have free arms. I'm one of those people, you know what I mean? So just wrap me up. As I was thinking about this sermon, there was a party that was like, what exactly is sackcloth or burlap or, you know, and so I did what any good 21st century American would do. I went to, uh, went to Michael's and um, walked around like a man who has no business in a store like that and, you know, struggled, but I made my way. Thank you. I think this will do. some of those, I don't know man, you're, this is your gift right here, you just decide where to put them, you have all the power right now, you've also done it in such a way so that if they don't let me out, I don't get out later, so <laughs> I might spend the rest of the day like this. Well done, well done. Now, there's one last thing, I'm going to try to kneel down, which is a little difficult, but I'm going to try to do this, there we go. worship online can appreciate it. I'm going to borrow one of these. There we go. That ought to hold it up. Never wore one of these before. In our life, spiritually, sackcloth is optional. Dirt on your skin is optional. I'm not sure that this is helping me preach. I'm not sure it's helping me feel any closer to God right at this moment. It's just outward stuff. It's just things on me that say there's something inside me that I need Jesus to deal with. Sackcloth is optional. Dirt on the skin is optional. But self-awareness, confession, those are essential. God welcomes people who've stumbled in the deepest parts of their life, and he says, come to the highest places of my life. Come up on my mountain. You've been down in your darkness in the depths of some wicked, evil stuff, but come up to the top of my mountain because you've faced it. God says, I will be your close friend if you will pursue a great reversal in your life. If you'll pursue turning your whole life around, I will welcome you into friendship you've never imagined. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is just another way of saying dirty on the inside. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. That's 12 hours. Now's probably a good time to tell you we're going to be here a while. So they did it for 12 hours. So, I mean, why couldn't we do it for at least like four or more, right? You had an extra sleep last night. It was fallback, right? So you got an extra hour of sleep. We'll have an extra hour of worship, right? 
the Jews heard from God through his word. Here there again, they did this in chapter 8. They did it at other times, but they're saying we're going to hear from God through his word. The best response in dark moments is loyalty to a faithful God. And part of loyalty is listening to God. Part of what these Jews are doing is rebuilding the practice of their faith, not just the walls around their city. They're back in a new place, and yes, they built walls, and God cared about their earthly life. He said, build the walls. You need it. Have walls. But now he's saying, let's address other unmet needs, your worship. And to do that, trading kingdoms, that's what they're doing, trading kingdoms, that requires hearing God. And there's nothing more powerful than realizing how dark, hopeless, and fallen life is. And at that exact moment, most of us are ready to hear from God. And he's ready to lovingly speak back and say, I see you. I understand what you're going through. I have another way of life for you. Let's go. Let's go. Do you know what else separated the Jews and Nehemiah from their neighbors? It's not the dirt and the sackcloth, although I got pieces of it falling off of me all the time. It's not the dirt and the sackcloth. It's that they praised God. Something else that separated them from their neighbors. Listen to the Jews. This is verse 6 through 37. So hang on, but it's good. Actually, it's 6 through 25, excuse me, verse 6 through 25. The Jews gather, the Levites lead them, and the Levites in in verse 5 say, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And then they start praising. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. These are those that they separated from. To give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous." You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on the ground and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters." And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes and law. Through your servant Moses, you provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. 
You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of the heavens, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. That's, by the way, a little bit of a backstory of the Feast of Booths that was going on in the previous chapter. That reveling, that eating great food is reenacting this story. And I say that they praised God, that they separated themselves from their neighbors to praise God because God didn't do all that I just read you. He didn't do that for the Ammonites. He didn't do that for the Egyptians. He didn't part the waters for the Jebusites or the Hittites. He didn't give a land of milk and honey to the Philistines, although they were fighting for it and wanted to take it. These blessings, these mighty acts were for the Jews. So the people of Nehemiah 9 are praising God. They're remembering that history. They're singing that song. Christ's disciples have their story too. This is Colossians 1. I'll just read it to you. It tells our story as the disciples, the followers of Jesus. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. That's you and me. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This is what's been worked out for us as Christians. It was the Father's good pleasure, Colossians 1 says. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And although you and me were previously alienated, and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him, listen to this, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Continuing in the faith, not shifting, loyalty, that's the best response to God's faithfulness. And the ancestors of Nehemiah's Jews, the Jews in chapter 9 and 10, their ancestors went astray. 
And that's verses 26 and on. And I'll just read a little bit. It says, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs. Killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you, here comes the grace. In their time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. And God keeps working and God keeps working. Verse 30 says, however, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, there are, now therefore, our God, the great and the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress." There's a lot of self-awareness, a lot of confession, a lot of honesty in these verses. They're saying that the distress that we have is caused by our own disobedience. God's been faithful. God's been loving. God's been compassionate. God sent prophets, and our ancestors just wouldn't listen and wouldn't listen and wouldn't listen, and now we're in a bad situation. What hope is there? Loyalty to God. Loyalty is the best response to God's faithfulness. Trading kingdoms depends on loyalty to God, and they're working their way there. They're seeking him, they're showing up, they're getting ugly, they're listening to his word, they're praising him, they're working his way there, and they ultimately get to the point in verse 38, after all of this distress, after telling all these hard stories, they get to the point in verse 38, and they say, now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And chapter 10 starts to, with all these names. I share that because once you get to the point of forgiveness, you're able to say, now because of all of this, and if you were to have me over for lunch someday, I wouldn't make you say, and if you have each other over for lunch, or you're talking this week, or you go on Facebook, you don't have to say, let me write this really long, ugly, like self-aware, just and put that out on social media for everybody. And most of us know better than that because like someday you have job applications or someday your future spouse will see it or something. So we get like not going to do that, right? But in the gospel, it's even more that we say now because of all of this, because God already knows it, we can be honest with him. And then when it's over, we just say now because of all of this. 
And the message then just becomes, let me praise him. Let me fellowship with him. Let me serve him. And that's why they make this covenant is they're not looking backward. They're looking forward saying, we want to make an agreement with God that we're going to seek him. We're going to move in the right direction. We could spend a lot of time, but I'm going to quickly just go through this covenant. Chapter 10 is there if you want to read it all. What I will say is this, chapter 10 begins with people who signed it and then a bunch of people who didn't sign it. And I point this out because I just want you to know it works like the U.S. Constitution. How many of you signed the U.S. Constitution? 1787, any takers? Any takers? I wasn't there either. I did not sign the U.S. Constitution, but it directs my life, right? It's what defines the, the rules, so to speak, in American society at a really high level. It's the U.S. Constitution. I don't have to sign it. <laughs> they created it. It's the way America works, right? That's the Constitution. It directs our lives. Well, this is the same way even for those who didn't sign it. This covenant has four components. First, chapter 10 says, we're going to keep the hearts and the souls of our children and our grandchildren separate from people who see God as their enemy. There were these people groups around them, as close as Truro or New Bedford or the North Shore, these close groups that had totally different ways of life, and they were opposed to God. They were not interested in the God of the Bible. They weren't going to follow him or obey him or worship him or anything else. And these Jews say, that's not going to be the future of our children if we can help it. That's not going to be the future of our grandchildren if we can help it. So they begin saying, we're going to steer our children away. We're going to raise our grandchildren and influence the children around us in a way so that they don't end up in darkness. And while it sounds sort of academic to think about historic people a long time ago, here's where it's practical for them. If they had allowed their children to develop really close relationships with these other people groups, that creates business deals. That creates cultural peace, because in the Middle East, they would have made peace by having neighborly relationships. And one way to have neighborly relationships is to say, our kids are married, we're family. You know, we do business together. I'm not going to hurt you. You're not going to hurt me because, you know, we got money involved, right? So that's, that doesn't surprise us that much. That's still how business can be. That's still how family can be. And it creates mixed up loyalty, which is why right at the beginning of this covenant, they're saying we're going to be loyal. And we're in, we, you know, of course you can't choose. I, I, I can't, you know, <laughs> choose or, or manage or direct my children into much. <laughs> but maybe after like 10 tries. But I can at least have the intention of saying before God, that's not going to be their future. That's, that's not what I'm going to let them just stumble into. I'm going to be intentional to steer them. A second thing the Jews decide to do is honor the Sabbath. If you put yourself in their shoes, you've left an established, civilized, militarily powerful, economically vibrant country and gone back to a city in ruins with no wall. And 52 days have passed, and you've rebuilt the wall, which is a miraculous accomplishment. But you still haven't made up for decades of vineyards and olive groves, and you don't quite have the Whole Foods built yet, or the Stop and Shop, or the corner convenience store. So it's a food desert, and you're working through all these issues. If anybody had a reason to say, sorry, God, we got to work seven days a week right now, it might be these people. But at the beginning of this, they say, we're going to take a Sabbath. We're going to set aside a day a week to just be with God, to seek him, to grow in our faith, to rest. To say, well, the olive groves didn't get 
you know, trim. I don't know what you do with an olive. They, they didn't get pruned this week, so the olives are just going to have to wait. You know, we didn't, we didn't quite get the vineyard in the shape we wanted it to, or I've been meaning to patch the wall up a little better because it's leaning and I need to reinforce it. It's going to have to wait. If six days I can't get it done, it's going to have to wait till day eight because I'm taking a day off. They trust and obey. They set aside a day to know God, let everything else wait. Thirdly, in chapter 10, these Jews commit to consistent, clear giving. If you read chapter 10, you'll dive into it. But basically, they say, this is what God expects of us for worship. These are certain practices, certain habits, and there's needs involved in that. So we, as the people of God, who want to worship God and put that at the center of our lives, are going to practically, clearly, consistently do the things it takes to make worship happen. So some of the people are like, we're bringing wood, which means cut down trees, chop it, put it on the donkey, haul it up to Jerusalem. It can be burned, then animal sacrifices can be roasted over it, and they can have their Jewish act of worship in that way. They're making worship possible. There are, others are giving money, others are giving animals. They're all getting involved. They're all doing the things that worship requires. Let me just go ahead and jump into the present moment of our lives. Preaching on this can be awkward, right? We can listen to somebody talk about the Sabbath. We can talk about, you know, our children and our grandchildren, and that feels one way, but this feels differently. And so I just want to shoot straight with you for a second and say that when it comes to the giving of this church, I don't know any more about the giving of this church than I know about the Sabbath <laughs> that you all take or don't take. I don't get emails. I don't get text messages. I don't get winks. I don't get uh, letters. I don't count anything. I don't go to the bank. I don't know. So I'm preaching with integrity just to say that when it comes to their children and the Sabbath and their giving, they say, we want to worship God and we want to see faith on the earth forever. So we're putting him at the core of our life. I know, too, as a Barnstable County resident who goes to the grocery store and who pays the taxes, I had to take a car to get the state inspection just so they could tell me that the seat belts work and, you know, the tires had air in them and all that. Like, right? I mean, these are the things we work through in our day and time. And these Jews had their own things that they were working through. And they ended up saying, wow, we've realized that this is not about a wall. You might remember the surprise of chapter 7 and chapter 8 is, oh, I thought we just were like moving back to Jerusalem and putting down roots and putting our life back together and we're back in God's country. And, and then all of a sudden, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9 start to say, oh, it's all about worship. It's all about praise. It's all about fellowship with God. It's all about spending time with him on earth. And here in chapter 9, they say, yeah. We're going to make worship possible. And that's the invitation of God to us, to make work, worship possible now. Because part of what he was do, God was doing back then is say, I want Jerusalem to be a place where anybody can stream in and come in through any one of the gates and say, God is worshiped here. He is awesome. I found hope. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And you'll remember from the Christ story that this came true, not just in the days of Nehemiah, but in Christ's own time. He rode in on a donkey and people were shouting, Hosanna, 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 because these Jews said, we're going to build the temple back. We're going to restore worship in our place. We're going to give so that it can happen. When that kind of giving happens, it creates space and time for people to say, Jesus has come. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is working in our lives. And it's true now. It's true for us. We can make time and space. And it's all for worship. Christ has done great things for us. Christ has set us free. He's delivered us from the evil one. I'm going to riff off of what Rich said earlier and share with you again from Ephesians 2. 
Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. If that had been the people in Nehemiah's day, it would have said in which you previously walked according to the course of the Hittites or the Amorites or the Jebusites or the whoever. Ephesians 2 continues, though, with the real source of where this comes from, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. What good, that, what good news that is. And here's why. It goes on to say, so that in the ages to come, right now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 5,000 years from now, he might show the boundless, endless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's our story. That's our reason for worship. That's our reason why we can praise God and celebrate who he is. It's all for worship. Christ has done great things for us. You have your own Nehemiah 10 song you could write, and I'm not a songwriter, so that's not what I'm going to do, but you can go home and have your own story. Trading kingdoms demands honesty. Not only do you have sin, but you can say all these things in the past, like the Jews said, all these things that are in the past are over because he can make you a new creation in Christ. Trading kingdoms requires hearing God. Trading kingdoms generates strong worship. Loyalty includes all of these, and it's our best response to God's faithfulness. It's reflected in what we seek for our kids, how we honor the Sabbath, how we make his worship possible. Let's close our time in worship just by praising him, celebrating him, recognizing him, appreciating him. It's possible through him to go from putting on your worst to finding out, I have a totally new life. I'm forgiven forever. I'm saved forever. I'm loved forever. All that old stuff is gone. That's just dirt. And Jesus has washed me clean. Nothing but the blood. Let's pray. Jesus, there's something that we have to say at the beginning and have to say at the end, which is that nothing but the blood. We have no other source of hope, no other source of new life, Nothing else that cleans us up, builds us up, restores us. You can do it with our emotions, with our minds, with our hearts. You can do it with our past. You can do it with our present. We have great hope this morning because nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing's too difficult for you. And the only thing we have to do is just be loyal to you. And it's easy because you love us and you care for us. And we thank you and we praise you for that. Bless these people this week as they go. You know each one of their circumstances. We all might be in different places and have different things going on, but may each one of us find out what we need to agree with you about, what we need to do, where we need to be honest. Speak to us through your word. Stir up our praises. Deepen our faith, for you alone are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.